I want to welcome you again, and just uh, particularly to say welcome to those of you as well who are tuning in via the live stream. It's so good that we can worship God together, isn't it? Now, a few Sundays back, we began a new series um, in the Psalms of Ascent, the book of Psalms, which is centered in the middle of your Bible there, is uh, a book of songs, and towards the end of that book, Psalms 120 to 134, there are these 15 Psalms that are called the Songs of Ascent, and we began a little series looking at select ones of these particular Psalms, and I want to continue that today, and I want to take you therefore into Psalm 127. If you have a Bible, please do open it to Psalm 127. It says this, a song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now, I want to just remind you of my purpose uh, in calling our attention to these particular psalms and this section in Scripture. We're aware, aren't we, of the enormous disruption that has taken place in our lives at the level of our personal lives individually, and you think about all your relationships that have changed and and been affected by the seasons that we've been in, Uh, your plans and purposes that have been derailed, and hopes and dreams for some that have been crushed and and changed and squashed and all that's that's happened personally. We also know that this has been true of us communally, that there is a reality that church has not been the same. And this affects us spiritually together. It affects us spiritually as individuals also. And I think, above all, my greatest concern, of course, is our relationship with the Lord. And I think that that is, also, that is relevant for us individually. It's also relevant for us as a people. There's a sense in which a church as a people can be walking with God and in step with the Spirit. But also, I think that a time like this has been more difficult than ever to, to sustain that. And therefore, as we're kind of feeling these moments of optimism of things return to what we hope will be something more like normality in the days ahead, we're very conscious, aren't we, that it feels like you're stepping out of a bunker after a great cataclysmic event, whether it's a great storm or something else, and you're kind of surveying the damage and surveying what's happened uh, relationally and and corporately and in our relationship with, with the living God, and there's a sense in which we are wanting to take stock in the moment and engage in the work of rebuilding and uh, repurposing and reconfiguring our lives at this time. And these psalms are so useful in the sense that they are, they were these songs that the Israelites sung on their way back to the temple once a year. As they came at these festal moments to come and worship the living God, the songs recalibrated the hearts of God's people. They rectified the sicknesses and the spiritual maladies that developed as people were going about their ordinary lives in the months in between. And most of all, they kind of put God at the center, don't they? They're about our connection with God himself and his purposes in this world. 
And therefore, I think they're so useful and relevant to us at this time, as we're in this season of wanting to rebuild and gather momentum in the days ahead. Now, I actually believe that a time like the one we've been through has immense use, that God uses such seasons. And I think that I could draw on many, many scriptures and also stories in scripture in order to demonstrate that. But this is also something that has been registered by secular observers and and psychologists and those who understand the way humans are constructed. And what I mean is this, in the ordinary course of life when things are going relatively smoothly, you tend not to ask great questions of yourself. You tend to run in the ruts and with the tracks that have already been laid out in front of you. And, you know, we often speak about being in the rat race, or it feels like the hamster wheel. You ever observed a hamster in its wheel, how these dumb creatures can be running? They have no idea that this is good for their health. They're not doing it for any personal gain or to be in great shape. They're just running because they think they're going somewhere. And there's a sense in which much of our life can be likened to that experience of being caught in a cycle of running, 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 and never really pausing and questioning. And so it is that you move forward with your, your line of work and with your way of doing life and the way you conduct yourself and leisure and social time and all these kinds of things without questions, really. And a moment like this is a moment to stop. It's been a, a long moment of stop, hasn't it? And it provides a unique opportunity I was reading a book by a a secular psychologist not so long back who described the importance of these moments in our lives and particularly moments where you feel like you've gone through something difficult. And he describes it as the adversity hypothesis. And I thought this paragraph was so helpful in capturing what I think is the opportunity in front of us. He wrote this. He says, when tragedy strikes, it knocks you off the treadmill and forces a decision. You hop back on and return to business as usual or try something else. It seems to me that those are the valid options in front of us. But as things return to normality, I'm thinking about you in terms of your individual walk with God especially. Perhaps your life will return to much as it was beforehand. Or perhaps this season that we've been in in has given you an opportunity to actually do some very deep work and to recalibrate your entire life perhaps. To try something else, he says. He says, trauma often shatters belief systems and robs people of their sense of meaning. So there's a sense of exposure, of being unclothed for a moment. And he says, in so doing, it forces people to put the pieces back together. And often they do so by using God or some other higher purpose as a unifying principle. Now, what he says by way of observation, the scriptures say by way of command. It's not just the fact that this just happens to be the case, that humans do this. They go through a tough time and then they begin to rebuild their life and reconfigure it in a better way. The Bible says, no, that is exactly what you must do. That very often the difficult seasons in life are brought about by God for that very purpose. To shake you. To remove the things that ought not to be in your life and to help you to rebuild in a better way. And so the question that comes to us is, what are you going to do with this opportunity? I think that the psalm, it really shows us that there are two paths in life. 
that there's this path that the psalmist describes of poor choices, essentially, whether your life is lived outside of the favor of God. And then there's this pathway that is depicted as a life that's basically well-lived. Now, you have to understand that this particular psalm written, as it tells us, was by Solomon. Solomon wrote most of the wisdom literature in the Bible. And the idea of wisdom in Scripture is this idea that the living God built his universe to function in a way that's right, according to wisdom, according to his wisdom. From the movement of the planets, the radiance of the stars, right down to the individual choices of lives like ours, right down to the movement of atoms and the growth of seeds and all these kinds of things, that God's wisdom pervades his creation. And as humans, the Bible shows us that you can either go against the wisdom of God, which is the way of folly, or you can go with the wisdom of God, which is the way of wisdom. And this psalm is essentially a wisdom psalm then, because what it's trying to paint for us is a picture of a life that's well-lived according to God's ways and his plans and his purposes, according to his wisdom, his pattern, and to try and seek to live in harmony with it. The very thing I think that our culture very often is at war against. So the question I'm asking with you today, and I think it's an urgent question, as we have this window of opportunity when we're seeking to reconfigure our lives, the urgent question is this, what is a life, a life that's well lived? If you get to rebuild, what's the plan according to which you ought to rebuild your life? What's the blueprint? And I want to show you, although I think that we could go to many places in the Bible to answer that question, I want to show you what was prominent in Solomon's mind as he wrote this psalm, reflected on what he had observed through his life and the way in which it speaks to us. And the first thing I think that this psalm tells us is that this way of wisdom, this life well lived, is a life that is primarily dedicated towards and living in service of the purposes of the God who made you. He begins in this way, doesn't he? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Those who build it, labor in vain. Now what he's doing here is he's raising this question, which I think every person needs to wrestle with and struggle with at points in their life. What am I building? Whose structure am I building? What is my life about, essentially? And this is a question which is inescapable in the sense that everyone's life is building something. Your life is lived in construction of something. If we take this metaphorically, you're always building. And to ask the question is to really engage in something that can be a very uncomfortable experience. It can be discomforting. It can be, it can be disturbing to begin to pause and to ask yourself, what is my life really about? What am I in pursuit of? What am I building with my life? It can be a haunting question for some people. Often sends people into a spirals of, of questions and angst and, and existential uh, frustration. One of my favorite films when I was growing up was the, the story of the Scottish runner, Eric Liddell, in the beginning of the 20th century. A Christian, zealous for God, who early in life had this opportunity to go to the Olympics in Paris, the 1926 Olympics. 
But the story isn't just about Eric Little. And I recommend you watch it just to enjoy you know, the delight that he has in fulfilling the purposes of God in his life. He was an Olympic runner who went on to become a missionary in China. But the story also has this contrast between Eric Little and this other man called Harold Abrams. Abrahams doesn't have the same faith that Eric Little has. And he's haunted by the need to do something with his life that's significant. This is what drives him towards being an Olympic runner. He runs 100 meters. And there's this moment of questioning that goes on in the room where he's warming up and, and speaking with a friend before he goes out on the track for the final of his, of his uh, race in that Olympic Games. And he turns to his friend and he says, I'm 24 and I've never known contentment. I'm forever in pursuit and I don't even know what I'm chasing. In one hour's time, I'll be out there again. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? This is the question. But will I? I've known the fear of losing, he says, but now I'm almost too frightened to win. I think that, I don't know that it's ever been put better than that. A man coming face to face with the reality of what he's dedicated his life to do and asking the question whether it's really worth it and whether it will satisfy the itch inside to do something meaningful with his time here on earth. Ten seconds to justify my whole existence. In some ways, that's an analogy of our lives, isn't it? A few brief moments on earth to justify our existence, it would seem. Now, the psalm is confronting us with this issue. What is a wasted life? It's not necessarily to do with the what of your life's work. The Bible doesn't have this narrow view that the only things worth doing are the things that are directly engaged with evangelism and, and the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church. It doesn't, the Bible doesn't teach that at all. So it's not necessarily to do with the what of your life's work. Everything can be pervaded by the purposes of God. Everything that we do in life can be touched by his will and his design and his purpose. The, the structure is bigger than just your Christian life, your, your so-called spiritual life. Nor is it about the degree of success that you might experience in life. That those who build are those who actually accomplish stuff and those who, who accomplish very little haven't built much. The Bible doesn't, doesn't say that at all. It says that we're, we're put where we are by the sovereign hand of God. Some of us have great things to do with our lives and some of us are small things. But what God is interested in is the faithfulness with which you apply yourself. But rather what the psalmist is, is doing here is he's raising the question of whether you are building with God or not. Unless the Lord builds a house. He says those who build it labor in vain. And really he's setting up these two possibilities for you, isn't he? That on the one hand you could be living your life according to the purposes of God, building with God, or you could be, as he puts it, laboring in vain. And so to take this negatively... It really confronts us with this problem that we could very easily live a life which amounts to nothing. That there could be, this word he uses here, this word vain, it means a kind of emptiness or a meaninglessness or a weightlessness. 
It's the same word that's used of lies in the Old Testament. For example, in the Ten Commandments. Or of taking God's name in vain. And it means something, it means in in a weightless way. And it's possible, therefore, he says, to live a weightless life. I think this is powerfully sobering. Many of you will be familiar with um, the first psalm where he contrasts, he uses two different sort of vegetation analogies. He says that some people live the righteous life and they're like trees planted by streams of living water. And the tree is a symbol of robustness and strength and fruitfulness. And he says the other image is of chaff, which is of course the waste product from harvest. When the wheat is harvested and the husk of the grain, the part that has no use whatsoever, the part that's carried away by the wind. He says some people's lives are like the chaff. This is weightlessness. And this is what the psalm is capturing here. Unless the Lord builds the house, he says those who build it labor in vain. That it's possible to live your life in the construction of, the pursuit of, a vain and empty pursuit. Meaningless and weightless way of living your life. Now this is, this is powerfully sobering, isn't it? I think it's, 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 it speaks to you if you have never come to know God and sought to live in line with his purposes. Jesus emphasizes this fact in his Sermon on the Mount. When he says that if you don't build your life on me and my words, he says it's like you're building it upon sand. And of course, any structure built on sand will last only as long as there is no wind or rain to, to cause it to fall. And that's how he puts it in Matthew chapter 7. He says, everyone hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. He's describing the inevitability of the waste that is a life that's built outside of him and his purposes. It may look like you've built something beautiful, accomplished great things. But he says, ultimately, the whole thing is going to fall like a house of cards. There is no integrity to the structure. There's no robustness. It doesn't have a firm foundation. This is sobering, of course, if you're not a Christian. But friends, I don't think that just because you're a follower of Jesus, that you can so easily assume that you're building in line with his will. Even the great apostle Paul was aware of this. When he's writing to the Corinthians, In his first letter to the Corinthians, he says, if anyone builds on the foundation, which is Christ, it's the same analogy Christ himself used, he says, if you build with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, you see these different materials he highlights, gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw, he says, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. He's speaking about, ultimately, the judgment and the the, the all-seeing eye of the living God. Because he says it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test, sift, filter what kind of work you have done. He says if, anyone, if, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So he's saying it's possible to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and ultimately see him face to face and be saved as through fire. As it were, you, you, are, you come through the fire, but nothing else in your life does. Because nothing else was built for him or for his purposes. Or in accordance with his will. But the great apostle Paul wrote this and felt the, 
the weightiness of this thought as he contemplated what it would be like to stand before his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. How much more should you and I? Unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. If we take this positively, what is he talking about here? This word house, I don't think that Solomon, I think he very deliberately left this unclear to us. The word house can be understood in different senses in in the Old Testament. In the broadest sense, the house was used to speak about the entire nation. The Beit Israel, the house of Israel. And so for Solomon writing, unless the Lord builds the house, he's speaking about the great purposes of God, the kingdom of God as it was expressed through the nation of Israel. It was also used, of course, at the temple, the house of God. Which, of course, if you know the story of Solomon's life, this was his great life accomplishment, was to build that specific house. But, of course, the Bible also uses the term in the sense of the household. What each believer is building in terms of their own life and their own household as a, an outpost of the worship of God on, here on earth. And I think that we can understand, therefore, when, when, when Solomon says to us, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain, we can understand our lives as sitting within the purposes of God at each of those three levels. The broadest level, of course, when it's used at the house of Israel, speaks about the kingdom of God on earth. And it means, it means the expansive way in which God's purposes touch every dimension of our lives. How you go about your daily work, whether it's for him or for earthly masters. The things that you are acquiring, the way you spend your money, everything. And this certainly means that everything in life can be either lived for him or against what he's doing. And then we bring it down a little narrower when it speaks of the the temple. The temple in the New Testament is the church of God. And every believer who's called to be part of God's family, who's called to be a, a follower of Jesus, has an invitation and a command to be part of God's work in the construction of his great spiritual temple, which is the church of God. Here on earth, the visible manifestation of his presence. Are you engaged with that work? Does that consume you? The concern for the glory of God as it's manifested through his people. Imagine a church such as ours if every person who's part of our church was consumed with and desiring that end. And then we can bring it right down to the level of the household. And indeed, of you as an individual. The sense that each one of us and our households are in a sense, the Bible says that this is the basic unit, military unit in the war for the cosmos. I think, for example, of what um, Joshua said. You remember Joshua, the great commander-in-chief who led the nation of Israel into the land. And at the end of his life and at the end of his accomplishments, when he had, when he had really uh, delivered on what he had been given to do, he offers before the Israelites a choice as individuals. And he says, if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua is embodying what Solomon is trying to articulate here about the wisdom of a life that is built where he says, as for me and my house, I am here to serve God. I'm here to be about the construction of the household of God here on earth. 
The wise life, friend, is, is fundamentally this then. It's a life that's consumed with, consumed with the question, what is God building and am I engaged with his work? I think it would be a great tragedy if you emerge out of this season and you begin to make new plans and to, make, to enact those plans now that there's more liberty coming to our lives and you forget this most fundamental element of what it means to be alive as a believer in God. To build his house. Now this brings us on to a second element that I think Solomon shows us here. Which is this, that the life well lived is also a life that enjoys something of the peace of God along the way. And this comes through in how he he then goes on to say that unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Describes this kind of anxious lookout on the walls. He says, it's in vain, you rise up early, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Now, here what Solomon is focusing upon is not just the sort of objective outer manifestation of what you're doing with your life, but also the way you experience a life lived either with or against God. In other words, it has to do with your well-being. We tend to think that this this notion of well-being is a real modern obsession, and I know that it has become something of an obsession in our day and age, hasn't it? But actually, the Bible is just as consumed with the questions of what makes a joyful life, what makes a peace-filled life, what makes a confident life, how to have a settled heart, a settled conscience. We think these questions are new. These questions are not new. These questions are as old as humanity itself. And in fact, if anything, the Bible more fully explores these themes than we're ready to do these days, I think. And we noticed a few weeks ago when we were looking at the 121st Psalm, how the theme there was to do with fear and anxiety. Do you remember it? I lift up my eyes to the hills. And it pictures the Israelite in the city of Jerusalem scanning the hills looking for enemies who might come over the hilltops. And that sense of living with a constant impending sense of doom. How anxiety can plague us. It can really affect us and rob us of joy in our day-to-day lives. And he says, from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord. It led us on a pathway of coming, restoring trust in the living God. And the only way to living a peaceful and joyful life is, to knowing, trust, is knowing trust in God. And this psalm is doing the same thing. It brings us back to this theme of anxiety and of fear. Now, I want to ask an important question with you as we just explore this a little bit further. Which is this, how, how can you compare the anxiety of the ancients, as the psalmist was well aware of what the average person in Israel would have faced in their day-to-day lives, with the anxieties that plague us today? And we know and have measured that anxiety is continually on the rise in our day and age. How can you compare those two things? And at first glance, I think we'd all acknowledge that they had a lot more, it would seem, to worry about. You think about the average Israelite father, I think this psalm is primarily written to, and the things that might consume him as he's concerned about himself and his household. He's worried about whether his children will make it into adulthood. In the ancient world, it was, it, it was a, a, a toss of the coin, it would seem, whether your child will grow up to adulthood. 
And I cannot imagine what it's like to live with the constant sense of wondering whether your, your children would live through the next winter, the next sort of flu season or whatever it was that affected people. How do you live with peace when these questions bother you? When poverty could be just round the corner. You know, if there's, a, if there's a difficult summer and there's not enough rain and your crop fails and there's no welfare system upon which you can rely, then your, your concern as a father in those days is, will I actually have any food to see us through the seasons? Will my family starve to death? Because it's, it's radically different, isn't it, from the concerns that we face in our day and age in our particular context where very often the average person is more worried about whether they can afford the Sky Sports subscription or the latest smartphone. I don't mean to belittle struggles if any of you do face financial difficulty, but I'm speaking about the average concerns that people face, which are nothing like what they were in those days. This father would be concerned with whether marauding raiders might come from across the river from a different kingdom and come and pillage the village and rape wives and kill children and steal crops and all the household wealth and all these things that could happen at any point. There there was no police and there was no standing army to protect them. So all these fears were constantly hanging over the Israelite. Worried of disease. You know, you you scratch yourself in the field and you don't know if that's going to turn septic and become septicemia and whether they'll kill you. You get conjunctivitis. You don't know whether you're going to lose an eye or both eyes. The disease. You can see what would it have been like to live with these sense of, this sense of vulnerability. And so the first thing I, I'm inclined to do is, is, is to begin to dismiss the ways in which we find ourselves anxious in our day and age because we have so much less to be anxious about. But I actually think that's a wrong move altogether. The reality is that we're just as conscious of our vulnerability. And I'd even put it as strongly as this. That in some ways, the anxious people in our day and age are the ones who have the most realistic grasp on, on reality, the most accurate grasp on reality. That it's those who have no concern in the world who are living with delusion. As though nothing can hurt you or harm you. And what it shows us, if, look, if we compare the lives of the ancients, that's so vulnerable as they were, with our lives today, and we say, okay, in every way, by every possible measure, our lives are a hundred times better on the surface of things, and yet we still wrestle with this abiding sense of fear and exposure and vulnerability. What does it teach us? It seems to me it teaches us that we cannot so easily control the world around us. And I think it brings us back to the biblical analysis of what is the real problem of the heart in this particular issue. The diagnosis that the Bible offers us, which is that fundamentally, this is not about your circumstances. It's always about your connection with God himself. That you could fix everything in your life, have everything in order, everything squared off, be in the perfect health. Yet if you're not walking in trust with the living God, you'll still feel this fear and insecurity because fundamentally you're a vulnerable, weak creature. And this is what the psalm is describing here. He's describing the sense of being exposed to danger, being the watchman on the walls, staying awake in vain. There's no point watching out for enemies because if God's not with you, you're dead in any case. He describes this kind of endless work to try and control life 
this rising early, this going to late rest, this consumption with, with anxiety, this anxious toil, he describes, and the sleeplessness. The Bible is showing us that fundamentally, all of these things, these symptoms that exhibit themselves in our lives, even if you have a perfect life on the surface, all of these things are rooted in this, this, this fundamental problem, unless the Lord, unless God is with you, he's saying. Unless you're walking in reliance upon him. And it brings us back to the biblical solution, which is fundamentally this. That we have to know the God who watches over us, who is our protector. Unless the Lord watches over the city. And the God who sustains us and gives us a sense of peace so that we can sleep. For he gives to his beloved sleep, the psalmist tells us. The wise life in the Bible is the joy-filled life because you can know perfect peace. And it's not a peace that's contingent upon your circumstances. This is what I'm trying to show you. Everything in this world is improved and yet we're still anxious. Because why? Your circumstances don't control your heart. Your heart is, is really controlled by your relationship with God. The wise life is a life that's run, running in step with God and in reliance upon Him and in trust with Him. Which actually... Is a life that can know peace even when everything around you is shaken, even destroyed, even robbed, taken away, broken, diseased. The Christian of all people is someone whose whole being should exhibit the peace of God in this way that I'm trying to describe to you. It's so evocative, isn't it, that he uses sleep as a symbol. And I think he does so because it's in our place of sleep that we most express our creatureliness. Do you remember the earlier psalm that it says that God doesn't sleep, Psalm 121? And this is why we can, we can sleep. Because he's creator, we're creature. He's the giver, we're the receiver. He's the maker, we're the made. He's the sovereign one, you're a creature. Who is subject to his great will and purposes. The real peace in life comes from knowing the God over you. Knowing the Lord who watches over you. The Lord who gives sleep to his beloved. This is the wise life, friends. It's a life that's pervaded by the peace of God. Have you known peace during this season? Do you feel peace even now? As you contemplate what is around the corner. And the, the way in which you're seeking to rebuild your life. Now let me show you one final thing. Solomon brings us to a final image, which is the one of fruitfulness and multiplication. He begins to speak in the second half of the psalm. He says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Now, I want to take this in a couple of different ways. I think we need to begin by recognizing that this is meant to be taken at face value, first of all. Now, this is a very difficult thing to preach on and a difficult thing to accept in our day and age. I think we live in a day and an age which actually is quite resistant to what Solomon says here about the goodness of family and of children as one of the purposes for which God made us. Why is this? And as I, I've wrestled with this question over the years, watching the world's attitude to children and uh, the way people react to family you know, we've got three children and a fourth on the way. I don't actually think that's a particularly big family. But every time you tell someone that you've got a fourth child on the way, 
the shock and awe. Like you're doing something extraordinary and crazy. What is this about? I think that what's happened in our day and age is that we've, we've, we've actually begun to think of children as something of an optional commodity. This is obviously a natural consequence of the fact that we can somewhat control when we do or don't have them to a certain degree. Through contraception and through the, the great scourge on our nation that is abortion in which we slaughter our own young for our personal desires and, and in life. Of course, when we have power over this, children are turned into commodity, which drives us to one of two extremes. Either on the one hand, we think of children as a great nuisance, a distraction, an inconvenience. Or, the other hand, if you think of children as a commodity, you can think of them as the one thing you need in life that you don't have that others have. And so children then take on, ironically, a sense of centrality and in the lives of certain individuals, and they become this kind of idol. The whole family circles around and worships the children. It's odd, isn't it, how we're driven to these two extremes? But it actually makes perfect sense of it when you consider that this is because we treat children like a commodity. The Bible has a radically different vision. You see the general trend, by the way, the fruit of this in our world at large, is the plummeting birth rates, getting to a point now of near crisis, and I'm not exaggerating. This is going to be probably the greatest challenge of the next 50 years in the Western world at least, the drop in birth rates. And this makes perfect sense to me in a world in which we have so fundamentally reoriented ourselves away from the purposes of God and misunderstood God's will and his wise pattern that he's built into his universe. You see, the preference for small families and delayed childbirth, even to the point where it becomes then almost impossible to have children. But the Bible puts the family at the center of the well-lived life. Now, I know in saying that, that I'm touching a sensitive chord in some of your lives, either because of the problem of infertility, and I know this, a past a number of you and spoken with so many people over the years who, for whom that is an issue. And I'm sensitive to that. I recognize that. And also because of singleness, because of the reality of, of those who desperately want to be in a position where you, you can have a spouse and children, but find yourself that the circumstances of life haven't led you there. I think that having noted that, it's so important, however, that we don't miss what is a biblical emphasis here. I don't think that I seek to overemphasize this in my preaching here at Grace. We're predominantly a church full of single people after all. But when we fix this in our minds as part of God's plan for us and it changes the direction of your life very early on. I, you know, I felt for myself that I had this fix when I was very young. Man, I married young and pursued this. And I think this is what is the ideal that we fix in our mind. What is it that God wants? And then run after it early. Now, that said, and I do want to underline this. Look, you see this coming through so emphatically in the psalm. He describes children as a heritage or a reward. In other words, they're not a commodity, but a gift from God. That, that means that you cannot despise children, but neither can you idolize them. You see how when we receive children as a gift, both of those options are ruled out. 
He also then begins to describe children as a weapon in our warfare. He says they're like arrows in the hands of a warrior. What does a warrior do? Well, first he carves his arrows straight and true, affixes the feathers and the sharp point, prepares them lovingly and carefully so that they will be straight and true and powerful. There is a great mandate upon the people of God to raise up, not just to have children, anyone can have children, more or less, but rather to raise children. And then he says that there's a blessing in having lots of them. Blessed is a man whose quiver is full of them. I'll confess there's some debate in my family over what a full quiver is. We haven't fully resolved that question. I'll let you guess who's on which side of that. But, um, but I, 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 I guarantee you this. The vision that Solomon has in mind is something radically different from what we tend to assume is true. So how do we understand this today? I, I think, look, the Bible has two great pillars that articulate the will of God for his people. In Genesis and at the end of the Gospels, the Bible is split into two sort of great chapters, as it were. There's the Old Testament, which is begun with the rule of Adam, and then the New Testament, which is begun with the rule of the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. And these two stories interplay. The first story, beginning with the first Adam, describes this will of God over us when he speaks to humankind. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and so on. In other words, he says to Adam and Eve, go and make babies and let, that, let your children be part of the extension of my kingdom and my rule on earth. And I don't think Christians should ever dismiss the urgency of that. This is part of what, the way that God has planned and made us and designed us and built us to rule and reign and to fulfill his purposes here. But then with the second Adam... The Lord Jesus Christ, the second great pillar in the mission of God, is there at the end of the Gospels. For example, in Matthew 28, when Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, he says to his disciples, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So if the first great mission of God was articulated as the, the extension of humanity through the, the biological family, the second great articulation of the mission of God is the extension of his kingdom through the spiritual family, which is the church, through spiritual parenting, which is the making of disciples. I don't think these two things have to be set in opposition to one another. In many ways, they complement and interweave. But what it means is that absolutely none of us are outside of the purview of this psalm and what it's speaking about when he describes this, this abundance and this fruitfulness in life. That it can, of course, be the gift of growing families when those families are raised in the will of God. I know this is a challenge here in London. It's a challenge that I face every day. But it can also be speaking here of the gift of growing churches, of the wonder of spiritual parenting, and the raising of disciples in the faith. And I think it even has a, a, a meaning beyond that. The Bible uses the language of fruitfulness and multiplication to speak about the fruit of your life. The things that you are here doing and accomplishing. So really what Solomon is talking about here, though I want to take him literally, 
I also think that we can understand it figuratively and recognize that he's speaking about the blessing of God that comes on the wise life. How God brings expansion. How he brings fruitfulness in everything you touch. Friends, I want to bring this to a conclusion here and just say this. I began by telling you that I think that in many ways we face a unique opportunity right now. This adversity hypothesis, which is everywhere in Scripture, that when God shakes your life, He gives you an opportunity to rebuild it the right way. And you have this choice before you. And the, the psalmist infers that there's a way of the fool here, which is a life that's built going about your own structures and plans and purposes. You're building a house, but it's not the house that God wants you to build. And that life, he says, will be accompanied by this constant gnawing anxiety. And ultimately, it will result in no fruit, no lasting fruit. That's essentially the message of the psalm, put negatively. But it's also an invitation. It's an invitation as you, as you take stock and restart. You're at a junction in the road right now. What are you going to do with your life? What is God telling you to do? How is he speaking to you? God wants nothing more for his children than to invite them into what he is building to experience the privilege of building with him, of having a life of purpose because you're invested with knowing that you are doing God's will here on planet earth. And it's accompanied by a sense of peace. If I'm in the will of God, I have nothing to fear. Everything that happens in my life is according to his will and purpose. And I know that the fruitfulness of this will be guaranteed. And for some of you, that may be just the very, um, the very consideration. Is God calling us to have children? Absolutely. If you're married, you love Jesus, and you're able to, then do it. But friends, it's not just that, is it? It's beyond that. It's the favor of God on the life of his people. How do we get this life? Remember, friends, when Christ said that he came to give us life and life in abundance, he wasn't just talking about the extension of our lives into eternity. We do believe in eternal life. He was talking about the quality of our lives here on earth and the way that he comes and reconfigures everything. There is nothing more tragic to me than a believer who has expressed faith in God but has failed to let Jesus come and do that reconfiguring and rebuilding work within What a miserable place it is to, be, to confess faith in Jesus but not really be a disciple. And the invitation here is come and experience this life. Listen to the Lord. Make those radical changes that you might need to make. There may be terrifying choices that you need to make in this season. Make them if it's God's will. Resolve in your heart to hold nothing back and to not give way to fear, but to live wholly for the Lord. What would your life look like if you fully engaged with the building of his house, his work, his will, his plan, his purpose? May God show you what that is and enable you to do it. Amen? Amen. Friends, why don't you bow your heads? I want to pray with you. Pete's going to come and lead us in a response of worship just now.
Oh, Father, I'm so aware of my mortality, of the temporary nature of this life on earth, of the gravity of daily choices. the horrifying truth that it's possible to live a life that ultimately amounts to nothing that crumbles but also of the possibility when we listen to you build our lives on your word seek to walk in step with the spirit repent of our sin accept Lord what wisdom is according to scripture according to your scriptures the possibility of what it means to live a life that is well lived, Lord. And I pray, Father God, that we'll see in these days ahead, Lord, the paths that you were laying out before us as individuals, as a church. We'll discover these paths, Lord, and we'll walk in them. I ask, Lord, for those here who don't know you, who are wrestling with spiritual questions, who are perhaps plagued by the questions of whether their life, what their life ultimately is about and what it amounts to. Lord, I pray that the invitation, what it means to come and build a life upon Christ will be overwhelmingly compelling and attractive. I ask, Lord, for those of us who are your disciples, Lord, that we will not fail to see the ways in which you are calling us to change. We ask it in your precious name, O Lord. Amen.